Okay, so hello everyone. Welcome to the Longevity Biotech Show with your host for today, Nathan Chang. Just a bit about myself. I'm the founder of the Longevity Market Cap newsletter. It's a once a week roundup of developments in the longevity biotech industry. I'm also the founder of Longevity List, which is a website where you can find jobs, companies, and investors in the longevity biotech industry. Uh, so today we have the great privilege of having Sebastian Brunemeyer on the show. He's a friend and one of the brightest minds in longevity biotech. Uh, Sebastian is a longevity biotech founder and also a VC. Uh, he was principal at Apollo Health Ventures, which is one of the largest and most well-known aging-focused VC firms in the world. Uh, he was also a co-founder of Cambrian Biopharma, and uh, he's also been involved as founder of um, Cyclone Therapeutics, uh, Samsara Therapeutics, uh, advisor to several other longevity biotech companies. And um, I'm pleased to say that he's also an advisor to Healthspan Capital, which is a new VC fund that I'm raising with Michael Chinin, a uh, angel investor. Um, so welcome to the show, Sebastian. It's a great honor to have you here. Perfect. Thank you, Nathan. Yeah, I'm honored to be here as an early guest on your sure-to-be world historic podcast, Nathan. So uh, yeah, uh, for those who don't know, Nathan mentioned he runs a longevity list. I came across this some months ago as probably the best resource and database for the longevity sector and his accompanying newsletter, which is also the best such newsletter for the industry that I've seen. So um, so I, I've just been super impressed by your conscientiousness and you're like a, a whirlwind getting so many things done. So uh, keep up the good work, man. <laughs> Thanks, Sebastian. Yeah, you're, you're too kind. <laughs> but um, anyways, enough about me. This is we're going to focus on you and all your uh, great expertise and all the uh, interesting insights that you have to share with us about the longevity biotech industry. So um, let's get started. Maybe uh, you can tell us a bit about your backstory. So like, how did you get involved in longevity? Sure. Um, so uh, something that I learned from the field of rhetoric and debate, as well as journalism, is to give the punchline first or not to bury the lead. Um, McKinsey consultants call this the pyramid principle, where you state the headline up front with the details to follow. So um, I'll do that. Uh, an abstract summary, who am I? Um, I'm a biomedical scientist by training. I've spent the last couple of years doing biotech and venture capital, including at Apollo Health Ventures, which is a $150 million longevity focused fund doing company formation. Um, and then I helped co-found a couple of longevity biotech companies. And uh, you'll be happy to hear that you already knew this. I'll be doing this for the rest of my life because I'm now spoiled or ruined for any other topic but longevity. Uh, and I think I'm probably preaching to the choir here among uh, the listeners. <clears throat> so uh, to get into more detail, the first company that I helped launch uh, from within Apollo uh, is called Samsara Therapeutics. Samsara being the cycle of reincarnation. And it's based primarily in Oxford, UK with labs in Paris and Graz, Austria. And Samsara 
It's a drug discovery platform company for autophagy enhancing small molecules. So autophagy is this process of cellular self-renewal or recycling. The cell breaks down its internal components and then rebuilds them. And I launched this company as an EIR from within Apollo. We've raised about $15 million to date, and we have identified several new mechanism of action autophagy enhancers, uh, small molecules, and that's more than any other company known. And we did it faster and cheaper than any of the other half dozen autophagy companies that have arisen since Samsara was founded. So that's largely to the credit of the current management team. I just sort of uh, set things up. And uh, right when I launched Samsara, actually, my now good friend, uh, Tim Funnel at Third Rock Ventures launched Casma, which is another more prominent autophagy company. It's raised 50 million and uh, it's a small world. Tim and I attended the same Oxford college, uh, although in different years, um, and he was in a different department. And we later became friends. And uh, after, after uh, we became friends after we independently launched autophagy companies. And, and now he's launching a new venture fund. So um, anyway, um, you know, there was a, a San Diego-based autophagy company called Calporta that was acquired by Fiona Marshall's team at Merck for up to $500 million in biobucks. And they're targeting a lysosomal ion channel, TRIPML1, uh, mucolipin-1, which everybody and their mother in the autophagy space is targeting, although I'm <laughs> maybe pleased to report that Samsara is not targeting TRIPML1. We have other targets. So anyway, the point is the um, autophagy space is starting to heat up, and that's nice to see. <clears throat> so uh, the next company of, uh, of note that I helped launch is called Cambrian Biopharma. I co-founded it with James Pyre from Apollo and Christian Engermeyer of uh, multifaceted fame and notoriety, but probably most recently for his work in psychedelics, Atai Life Sciences, which is IPOing soon, and uh, Compass Pathways around psilocybin, which has IPOed previously. Um, so Cambrian, it's a new virtual corporate model for drug discovery. So it is a what we call a diversified distributed drug discovery company. Uh, the term that I coined cutely is the disco, like a 1970s style dance club disco. Um, and it's based on the bridge bio model uh, from Andrew Lowe, professor at MIT. And we can get into that. <clears throat> so Cambrian uh, has had quite a lot of traction. Uh, we raised about 60 million in the first year from very prominent investors like Steve Jurvetson, who uh, is sort of a visionary investor who backed all of Elon Musk's companies, plus uh, the CEO of Allergan, the big pharma, uh, and some big Wall Street names like Mike Novogratz. So we recruited a team of drug hunters and geroscientists, and we're now advancing 15 different programs in the aging space. And the model is quite scalable, so uh, we could, we could um, scale up just hiring more talented people. That seems to be the bottleneck. And uh, Cambrian is basically filling the gap that pharma has left when they stepped out of early stage R&D over the last decade or so. Um, you know, as a fun fact, 20 years ago, most newly approved drugs came from the internal R&D pipelines of pharma. 
But nowadays, the majority comes from small biotechs and primarily academic spinouts. And Andrew Lowe, again, the master of data sets, has uh, data on that. So I recommend you look up his, his talks um, on YouTube. So in addition to that, I advise biotech founders in the longevity space and help them raise capital and hone their pitch. So if you or someone you know is a scientist or founder working on the next big Jera protective compound, you know, feel free to get in touch uh, and I'll try to help. Um, so, you know, to conclude, basically, yeah, I, I try to focus on the interface of three disciplines. Uh, one is geroscience, biology of aging. Second is the nuts and bolts of drug discovery and pharmacology. And the third is venture capital and biotech management. And there are many experts uh, far superior to me focused on each of those areas, but few people who attempt to bridge the gap between those areas. So anyway, that's, that's the intro. I can, um, I can get into my backstory as well. I, I kind of like the format of Nature Biotech's First Rounders podcast or the Luke Timmerman podcast, which are biographical. So I can give you the colorful details of my life thus far, at least as it relates to geroscience. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So um, Nathan told me he was he was going to want the uh, backstory, so I, I made some notes. So hopefully this um, this is entertaining for you all as I bear my my heart. Um, so <laughs> as a child, <laughs> I was interested in health and medicine, probably because I had medical issues as a kid, and my dad passed away when I was quite young. So mortality was sort of at the forefront of my mind. Um, my favorite picture book that my mom read me was a human physiology book. Uh, my favorite courses in high school were AP biology and physiology. Um, and so I knew early on that medicine was my likely path. Also of note, uh, in high school, I became interested in topics like nutrition, uh, Ayurveda, traditional Chinese medicine, martial arts, yoga, and Eastern philosophy, including Buddhism and Hinduism. And I read uh, thinkers like Robert Anton Wilson, Timothy Leary, Terence McKenna, Alexander Shulgin, and other sort of mystical scientist types. And so it was inevitable that as a true San Franciscan hippie, I eventually experimented with psychedelics, which gave me direct experience of neuropharmacology and the incredible value of these molecules for both intellectual breakthroughs and, and healing from emotional trauma. And, uh, you know, the revolutionary social movements of the 60s around the anti-war movement and social rights and free love and environmental protection and so on were in no small part inspired by psychedelics, which make you question your assumptions and conditioning and in the grip of our ego and anxieties are also loosened. And so it's nice to see in recent years that uh, there's been a lot of excitement in the field, probably a little too much excitement actually in the psychedelic space. Uh, the markets are a little bubblicious in some places. Anyway, so I, I also think the technical advances of Silicon Valley arose in part from this milieu. So the mix of military funding and hippie engineers on acid and both Steve Jobs and Bill Gates are on record saying they regard LSD as one of the most important influences on them. <clears throat> and uh, 
according to Aldous Huxley in his book, uh, The Doors of Perception, he said that psychedelics cleanse the doors of perception. And he was talking about his experiences with mescaline, but I think they all, they all do. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of cool research coming out that psychedelics may accomplish these effects by enhancing neuroplasticity and adult neurogenesis. And there's some fascinating chemistry going on uh, in the field, including groups like Atai Life Sciences and academic groups. And one shout out I wanna give is uh, a molecule called ibogaine, which I think deserves a lot more attention because it's fairly efficacious in curing addictions and other uh, trauma-based behaviors. So, um, and on the psychedelic front, you know, I was amazed personally that such a simple compound could have dramatic effects on the psyche. So I dove into the neuropharmacology literature in high school as my first real foray into science. And, you know, the neuroscience theme continued. I'd later write my undergrad thesis on the neuropharmacology of AMPA receptors at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York, where incidentally, a lot of the ketamine antidepressant clinical work was happening at the time in which a Thai life science is working on. I, uh, I also worked on AMPA receptors because some of the cognitive enhancing nootropics like the racetam class act on AMPA receptors as AMPA kinds. And then I'd later do a master's in molecular neuroscience in Amsterdam on neurogeneration and brain aging. So that theme continued, but on the longevity front, um, you know, in high school, again, like many teens addicted to the early World Wide web, it was called, I lurked on various internet forums. And uh, I happened across a lecture by Aubrey de Grey and then read his pioneering book, Ending Aging. And I have enormous respect for Aubrey's dedication to cause, even at great personal cost to himself in several ways. And, you know, he has a very high IQ and an iconoclastic streak, which I appreciate. And one of my favorite Richard Feynman quotes is that uh, science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. And he has proven that over some years now. And, uh, you know, the paradigms are always shifting. And while the scientific establishment is dogmatic, like uh, the Catholic Church, it's possible that many people uh, can have a direct experience with the data and disintermediate uh, and overturn the dogma. Kind of like the amyloid hypothesis, for example, which amazingly FDA, we probably shouldn't get into this because I'll, I'll never shut up about it, but the FDA approved an amyloid beta drug, aducanumab, um, against the protestations of their own ADCOM advisory committee and statisticians and everyone else. So there's some sort of fishy corruption going on there with Biogen, I think. But anyway, so, you know, back to Aubrey, um, as a computer scientist, his book was a systematic engineering approach to aging, which resonated with me. I like applied sciences. And so I applied for the SENS fellow program uh, at one point and sent a writing sample to get into the program uh, from a technical neuropharmacology article that I wrote as an undergrad. And Aubrey uh, read it and invited me to publish it in his journal, Rejuvenation Research, which is how we first interacted. And I also want to give a shout out to the OGs of SENS, uh, Kevin Parrott and John Schloendorn, who influenced me at that time as well. So, you know, I thought I wanted to be a medical doctor because it's practical and prestigious. Um, but in college, at some point, I realized at least in America, the medical profession is an absolute mess. So most doctors are morally burned out. Most of the drugs uh, barely work. Uh, the combined effects of government control and 
corporate profit has turned doctors into robots pushing pills and they don't have much time to connect with their patients as humans. Um, so I resolved to help develop new medicines that actually work to target the root cause of disease being aging. And that's the higher leverage strategy. Anyway, as a doctor, I could only see so many thousands of patients, but as a biomedical scientist, I could have a much bigger impact. Also, I'm squeamish and I don't like the sight of blood. So, <laughs> and I like, I like molecular biology and I, I worked on sirtuins also as an undergrad, an important class of aging genes. And, uh, I also didn't want to go into debt. Um, as uh, for medical school, because I was afraid of the quote by Albert Einstein that compound interest is the most powerful force in the universe. There's another good Einstein quote, which is um, um, there are two things in the universe that are infinite, uh, potentially infinite, the, the size of the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the size of the universe, <laughs> something like that. I probably butchered it, but um, anyway, so Einstein was full of all kinds of clever quotes. Um, so anyway, I finished college with good grades and an interest in biotech. So I do the internship at the Buck Institute with the SENS Foundation, which was at the time largely funded by Peter Thiel. And I worked as a research assistant on biotech venture capital for a professor at Caltech. And I was quickly recruited to help launch a chemical engineering CRO company as a third employee which is my first biotech or my first startup experience. And uh, that company has since become quite successful in the cannabinoid space and was later acquired. Uh, though I didn't have any vested equity because I left for a Fulbright fellowship uh, to do telomere biology research at the Gulbenkian Institute in Lisbon, Portugal. And there we worked on telomeres and zebrafish, which are the same length as humans, six KB kilobases, unlike mice, which are much longer making mice a misleading model for telomere biology. Um, and this lab generated uh, zebrafish telomerase knockout animals, which age three times as fast. And you can screen drugs to try to slow that accelerated aging phenotype. It's sort of a progeria type model. Um, and actually it was during that period that I met my good friend, Avi Roy, who's on the call and did an internship in London with him and Deep Knowledge Ventures, now Longevity Capital. and. Uh, I continued as an associate during my master's in Amsterdam, where I got a scholarship and did a dual degree in molecular neuroscience focused on Parkinson's and cell death and uh, uh, life science business management, um, which is purportedly teaches you how to run a biotech company. So, so anyway, um, I did, uh, did that biotech uh, degree and, you know, was at the top of my class and I wrote my thesis on how to evaluate preclinical assets for venture capital. And I interviewed for a job at Four Beyond Capital, which is um, one of the top Dutch VCs. And uh, with the biotech legend, Sander van de Venter, uh, who developed the first monoclonal antibody and the first gene therapy, respectively at Unicure. And, but I was rejected ultimately on the basis that I didn't have a PhD. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the professor in charge of my course though, he himself, a successful biotech entrepreneur, invited me to be his right-hand man operating companies while doing a PhD in his group. But uh, it had nothing to do with aging. It was virology, which is clearly relevant today. So I passed on that. But I had been, meanwhile, corresponding with uh, James Pyre, uh, who was just founding Apollo Ventures in Hamburg at the time with Niels, Ola, Harvey, and Alex. And he and I met at an aging conference hosted by The Economist in London. 
when we clicked immediately, we were on the same wavelength. We both have this missionary zeal around longevity, and he recruited me to Apollo as the third scientist on the team. And he became one of my closest friends and confidants and a kindred spirit. And, uh, and I made several other good friends at Apollo, and I would strongly recommend that others apply to work at Apollo and at our portfolio companies. So, you know, when I arrived at Apollo, I was given a lot of freedom and thrown in the deep end. I was asked to survey the aging literature and build a new co from scratch, period. That was the instruction. And I would also diligence inbound investment opportunities and scout for deal flow. So, you know, the, the new co had to be in an area where we didn't already have a company. We already had a company developing rapamycin analogs, AOV and pharma, which has since raised $37 million Series A with leading VCs plus Evotech. Um, we also have a senescence company, Clira Biotech, which is the first company developing the FOXA4 P53 peptides. And it's gotten a lot of press attention for reversing aging phenotypes in mice. And it attracted the interest of Google's Calico uh, as well, and, and also several copycat companies targeting FOXA4. Um, so the, you know, I had to choose an underexplored area and I believe the most evidence was in autophagy and lysosome function relevant to aging, you know, for caloric restriction to extend healthy lifespan, autophagy is genetically required and enhancing autophagy genetically is sufficient to extend mouse lifespan about 15% and protect them from many different disease models. And they also don't get fat if you overfeed them. So um, you know, I knew there were some compounds known to induce autophagy, but uh, they were not very potent, most of them, and or had side effects. And there had been few, if any, industrial drug discovery projects seeking to discover new autophagy enhancers systematically. So I focused on autophagy. And six months later, and after about 100 meetings with professors all over the world, mostly virtually, thankfully, I eventually met uh, Guido Kromer in Paris and Frank Matteo in Austria. And they're both quite prominent geroscientists, and uh, Guido is actually the last author on the Hallmarks of Aging paper, which you guys will know. Um, and at that time, I realized I love this job because I could get access to elite scientists and learn the cutting edge of science before it was even published. Uh, so, you know, these guys um, had long been collaborating. They had interesting data on new gero protectors and assays that could form the basis of a drug discovery platform company in the autophagy space. And after some months of negotiations with the comically incompetent tech transfer officer at the French equivalent of the NIH known as Inserm, the company was formed. By the way, the Austrian equivalent tech transfer office was a breeze to work with. Um, and that was a good exercise in negotiating IP license agreements and R&D agreements across borders. So, you know, the founding scientific team, Guido Cromer, Frank Matteo, Oliver Kapp, Didac Carmona Gutierrez, and others were key founders. My job was to define the R&D strategy, the budget, a Gantt chart, the pitch deck, the data room, and I managed the company as COO for the first year. And I recruited in additional team members, including Peter Hamley, a chemist and pharma BD exec who came from Sanofi and AstraZeneca, as well as the great Cambridge chemist, uh, Warren Galloway. And uh, they've since expanded the team beyond Paris and Graz. They built up a lab in Oxford with very cool capabilities and lysosome activation and target identification. Um, you know, in brief, <clears throat> we set up the largest automated autophagy phenotypic screening pipeline called LysoTracker. 
uh, combined it with about a dozen proprietary cell-based assays for mechanistic studies of drugs. And uh, now our team has optimized a label-free um, mass spec-based uh, target ID method, similar to thermal proteome profiling that allows us to identify new targets and mechanisms of action. Um, so, you know, you don't uh, need to begin with a target to drug necessarily. Um, you can actually just screen compounds. This is phenotypic screening. So we start with a library of chemical matter uh, and we find which ones enhance autophagy in cells, fish out the targets and let the chemistry teach us the biology. And historically, phenotypic screening like this is how most important drugs were discovered, especially the most efficacious drugs like antibiotics. And the rise of target-based discovery has is relatively new, and it's been underwhelming in most therapeutic areas. And even as the technology advances, uh, the costs continue to rise, and we yield fewer new drugs. So, um, you know, although there are new modalities like gene and cell therapy and the focus on rare Mendelian diseases that has slightly arced the downward trajectory of uh, pharma R&D. And there's some literature from uh, colleagues of mine arguing that the switch in drug discovery philosophy may partially explain the declining efficiency of pharma R&D along with some other factors like the low hanging fruit has been picked. It's a bloated bureaucracy and it's a cartelized industry with, you know, 10 to 20 big names doing everything. Um, the switch from natural products chemistry to synthetic libraries, largely for IP reasons, uh, perverse incentives within pharma to not rock the boat if you work there and to just collect your bonus for advancing questionable molecules to the next stage of development, passing the baton um, and poisoning the well. Uh, and, and some analysis has shown that the IRR, the rate of return on pharma is going negative, meaning they're net losing money on internal R&Ds these days because it's so inefficient. Um, by the way, it, it doesn't cost one to two billion to develop a new drug as is often quoted. It, it's not even close to that. That's an inflated number from Joe DiMazzi's group at Tufts, which is a pharma funded think tank. And uh, they want to overestimate costs to justify high drug prices. The number is probably well over two times as high as it should be because they include the cost of capital calculation with a 15% discount rate plus accounting for all of the failures. So the way they arrive at that number is um, by dividing the number of annual drug approvals by the money spent uh, on R&D or the reverse. Uh, and so it accounts for all of the failures. And that tells you that pharma is simply very inefficient at their job uh, because the failure rate is so high. Uh, the real numbers are available from uh, an NIH database or from Andrew Lowe's work, and it varies by therapeutic area, but ballpark numbers somewhere around 5 to 10 million for preclinical, 5 to 10 for phase 1, 10 to 30 for phase 2, and 50 to 100 for phase 3, uh, plus, you know, several million regulatory costs. So ballpark around, you know, 100, 100 to 200 million all in. And most of that is backloaded in the phase three study anyway. So odds are you won't even actually spend most of that money if you design a rigorous phase two study that shelves the bad compounds early or you can pivot indications. So anyway, clinical trials can probably be done more cheaply. There's a huge difference between investigator-sponsored studies by clinicians at hospitals versus studies run by CROs that are used by pharma, uh, more than double the cost differential. Um, and, and so, you know, think carefully before accepting these industry propaganda numbers, use critical thinking and check out the data from Andrew Lowe's group. There's a data set called Project Alpha with a lot of useful numbers. And uh, the bright side of that is 
he's shown in the last three years that the rate of successful clinical trials has been rising rapidly, perhaps in part due to the fact that more biotech source drugs are coming out rather than internal uh, pharma R&D source drugs. So um, so that's a positive development. And, and so the bubbliciousness in biotech stocks uh, may, may be in part justified by the increasing rate of clinical success. So anyway, I'll, I'll, a little off topic, but I'll leave it at that for the next question. <laughs> Great. Thank you. That's, that's an incredible backstory, like, um, you know, how, how you came to longevity and, um, you know, your, your experience with, um, you know, psychedelics and then going through get, getting to like Apollo and then founding Samsara, getting into the autophagy space wow. and then, uh, you know, uh, meeting up with James Pyre and then starting, you know, Cambrian, which is one of these, these like really big sort of um, umbrella company, uh, drug discovery companies. So it's very interesting, um, you know, all this stuff that you've been involved <laughs> with just like everywhere. And, um, and very interesting, the thing that I've noticed about you when we, you know, have our conversations is like, you just think very clearly, like there's all these like hidden assumptions that people just believe, I guess, in the biotech uh, industry or in the longevity industry, but mm. you just uh, happen to just like know exactly what's going on behind the scenes. And uh, it's really, really interesting. Um, so may maybe we can uh, shift gears a little bit and... Um, Maybe you can tell me about uh, some of the things that you're thinking about right now. So like what kind of longevity therapeutics or, or approaches or modalities uh, do you think are, are the most interesting? Sure. Yeah, that's, um, that's a good one. That's the secret sauce. <laughs> I'll share some of it with you. Um, and, uh, and thanks. You know, I, I appreciate you think I'm a clear thinker. I, I try, but uh, we're all mostly wrong most of the time, probably in, in retrospect. Um, as for, uh, you know, if anyone's curious about venture, um, you know, that was part of the pitch. I, I gave a couple lectures to um, the Oxford VC Society and other groups that you can see on YouTube that'll fill in the gaps with some more details. So if you want to get into the industry, um, I would recommend checking that out. So question was, which uh, therapeutic areas and, and modalities and so on am I interested in? Well, um, Probably the low-hanging fruit first, which are small molecules. That's mostly what we've done. Um, biologics are more expensive to develop, uh, although they have stronger IP because you get 12 years of marketing exclusivity regardless of your patent, and there are bi barriers to biosimilars development. So a lot of the best-selling drugs now are actually biologics, um, particularly monoclonal antibodies. So you know, my view in the longevity space is let's start with the relatively easy stuff, small molecules, and we know they work. Uh, you can extend lifespan of small molecules already and tackle the bio biology risk before layering on the risk of a new modality as well. Um, <clears throat> so I, I saw this question coming, of course, so I've made some notes and, and I have some uh, rapid fire sermonizing to do, some proselytizing. And, uh, and, and so I'll, I'll, I'll just quickly touch on a number of topics. So the first thing is that um, vascular aging and atherosclerosis should be the priority in this field. The majority of all deaths uh, are from atherosclerosis or vascular aging if you combine heart disease and stroke, uh, which also affects cognitive function, by the way, we're having micro strokes all the time. Uh, and yet, despite that, um, over half of all funding, biotech funding goes to oncology 
to cancer because the regulatory standards are for approval are quite low in the opinion of many clinicians too low. Uh, the, you know, the approvable endpoints include tumor shrinkage, not overall survival. Uh, and the overall survival that is approvable is often fairly trivial, a couple of months. So, you know, the lesson is that pharma follows the money, not the medical need. I don't think that comes as a surprise to anyone, despite uh, all of the flowery language that pharma uses. And uh, the cholesterol hypothesis, like the amyloid hypothesis, has led us astray. Uh, statins, for example, one of the best-selling classes of drugs ever, um, a torvastatin, for example, sold uh, Lipitor, sold $120 billion over its 20-year period. Um, they don't work very well, uh, except for familial hypercholesterolemia. Uh, the number needed to treat uh, is 1 to 500 uh, for statins and cardiovascular events. Um, and I think we should focus on other aspects of vascular function, autophagy being one of them, but chronic inflammation and insulin signaling and nitric oxide signaling also being relevant. Um, another area I think is quite uh, important uh, is the bone marrow, rejuvenating the bone marrow. So targeting hematopoietic stem cells, mesenchymal stem cells, uh, and rebooting the immune system. So it's very obvious these days that immune senescence is an issue with respect to COVID. Uh, and we should also target the thymus. Um, I've also noticed that pretty much all of the parabiosis factors are, are uh, immune factors or cytokines like CCL11 or eotaxin or TGF-beta and so on. That's a big clue that the immune system is instrumental in aging. Um, and I haven't seen, I don't know if this is out, but I haven't seen any wild type lifespan data from parabiosis yet. Um, uh, you know, in Arena Convoy's view and others, it's actually, there's bad stuff in old blood more than good stuff in young blood. So how you would, you know, transferring young blood is unlikely to extend healthy lifespan, although there are some data indicating some health span effects. Um, but, but what is uh, apparent is that heterochronic parabiotic transfer of young bone marrow into old mice has been demonstrated by two different groups recently to extend their lifespan by between 15 and 30%. Uh, I think that's an important result and should get more attention. So bone marrow is an exceptionally important tissue for aging. Um, another uh, sort of soapbox that I get on is around natural products chemistry. So um, most of the known geroprotectors or natural products are derived there, there from, uh, thereof. Uh, they come from nature, uh, from microbes or plants and so on. And uh, they're slightly modified, often for IP reasons, and that's been the bread of butter and pharma for the last century. Examples are rapamycin, metformin, fazetin, and other polyphenols, 17-alpha-estradiol, acarbose, minocycline, aspirin, and various vitamins, as well as recently demonstrated uh, the SGLT2 inhibitors from apple tree bark, which cause you to uh, excrete excess glucose, um, a caloric restriction mimetic mechanism. And most drugs prior to the 70s were natural product derived. Uh, then there was this shift. Uh, pharma moved away because it's inconvenient to do bioprospecting and travel all over the world and isolate soil samples and so on. That's how rapamycin came about from Rapa Nui, Easter Island soil sample. And it was almost lost to the sands of history, if not for the heroic uh, Wyeth scientist chemist who happened to stash 
some rabomycin in his freezer when pharma shut down his program and it was rediscovered. It's quite a saga. Similar story with metformin, by the way, it was almost lost to history, but it kept popping up because it, it was so important in the context of diabetes. Anyway, so you have to bioprospect, you have to isolate individual compounds, uh, many of which are structurally similar. You have to modify those structures to get a patent these days because of this uh, Myriad Genetics 2012 Supreme Court case uh, overturning the Chakrabarti case. Uh, and pharma has gotten around this problem lately um, with biologics. So, you know, it's a small, all of these inconveniences are a small price to pay for drugs that actually work uh, and have evolved for a specific mechanism or target uh, over millennia. So, for example, the mechanism by which rapamycin inhibits mTOR could pretty much not be invented by a chemist. It's so, you know, it, it, it pulls two different proteins together. It's a molecular glue. I mean, chemists are doing this now, uh, but at the time they weren't. And, uh, and it binds in such a special way that, you know, it's often said that nature is the best chemist by far and probably always will be. So anyway, pharma, pharma has, um, gotten on the biologics bandwagon, um, drugs from the organism itself, such as antibodies, uh, peptides, gene and cell therapy. And I think, you know, the era of fully synthetic drugs, small molecules may prove to be a blip in the history of drug discovery. And, you know, I'm a pretty conservative person in this field in general, I'm cynical and skeptical. And, uh, you know, for example, I'm a metformin skeptic, the lifespan, I think it's good for diabetics for sure, but the lifespan boost that you get in mice in the ITP program at the NIA is only 5%. And you have to get the dose perfectly right. It's a U-shaped curve because too much metformin is toxic. It's a mitochondrial toxin. It's a complex one inhibitor. So metformin seems to have a sort of unfavorably asymmetrical downside. But, you know, I have set aside my skepticism in the long term for biotech because I think that biologics and gene and cell therapy, once the manufacturing logistics are sorted, have the potential to totally revolutionize medicine in a way that small molecules could never dream of doing. And then the germline engineering of humans will be another brave new world. So I don't think we're ready for it, but the cat is out of the bag. There's nothing that can be done. Um, another cool area is uh, one of the hallmarks of aging is stem cell exhaustion and, and present in the seven deadly sins framework as well. There's a, a term that I quite like called stemistry. Um, so groups, very prominent groups like Pete Schultz at Scripps, who runs Scripps, and uh, Steve Davies at Oxford have published nice reviews on the subject, um, using small molecules to rejuvenate or activate stem cells in situ or in place, in vivo. Uh, fasting and NAD appear to do this as well. So, for example, I'm, I'm helping a new stealth mode spin out. Uh, with small molecules that rejuvenate multiple stem cell types, ex vivo and in vivo, with only a week of dosing to middle-aged mice, they get a 10%, 10 to 15% median lifespan extension. And the drug flips an epigenetic switch in the stem cells. So, you know, this could rejuvenate various cell types, bone marrow, intestinal stem cells and, and others. So stay tuned for that. And it's still in stealth mode. Um, another abstract issue, which is, um, there's probably a programmed aspect to aging, program theory of aging. This is an unpopular opinion in the SENS world, but um, I think it's actually favorable to our prospects for geroscience and extending lifespan because it's simpler to intervene at a centrally coordinated process than fix every little myriad type of damage that might occur. Um, so, so why do I think that? Uh, salmon, 
the fish and other animals age rapidly after reproduction or during certain seasons. Mammals experience certain phases like menopause, andropause, puberty, and, and others, uh, all of which predict lifespan. Um, and it's reflected in RNA sequencing pattern shifts in specific developmental stages in humans. Um, and also early puberty predict shorter lifespan, et cetera. So uh, there's also the legend that eunuchs or castratos lived longer in the classic trade-off between reproduction and longevity as would be predicted by the disposable soma theory and uh, antagonistic pleiotropy, the idea that some genes or processes are beneficial when young, but deleterious when old. Um, so therefore, I would bet that aging is at least in part coordinated by some kind of central endocrine system, maybe the hypothalamus or the pineal gland or, or something at the center. And there was some interesting work at uh, Einstein uh, College in New York by Dong Cheng Kai's lab, and he's shown lifespan effects uh, by reducing hypothalamic inflammation and the transplantation of hypothalamic stem cells uh, from, from young to old mice and profiling the RNAs secreted by these rare cells that are apparently sufficient to recapitulate the effect. So that sounds like a potential drug to me, Those are, that RNA cocktail, ideally a single RNA. Um, so I don't, I don't actually believe that aging is merely damage and the Yamanaka reprogramming work has provided further evidence that aging is largely epigenetic, setting aside the DNA mutations that are up one level, they're beyond the reach of reprogramming. Um, and on the point of reprogramming, I think it's good for ex vivo applications like rejuvenating T cells or some other cell for transplantation, but um, it can't yet be done in vivo for a couple of reasons. One, uh, gene therapy issues, delivering multiple Yamanaka factors uh, and also the AAVs, the adeno-associated adeno viruses that are used as vectors are more dangerous than we thought, as we're now seeing, hepatotoxic. They actually do integrate into the genome uh, rarely, but that's an issue. And they just don't transduce or transfect enough cells. Um, and groups like uh, Ocean, uh, Matt Schultz and others have uh, been working on this. If, if that works, and I, I sincerely hope it will, it'll be an absolute revolution. So a hat tip to them. Um, there's also a second problem with reprogramming, which, which they actually saw in some of the original work, including the Ocampo work at Salk in the Belmonte lab, which is um, the risk of tumors called teratomas, which contain all kinds of other, all kinds of cells like a developing embryo would. And this is true of many other cell types, uh, stem cell uh, type therapies. So, you know, maybe reprogram reprogramming can be done in vivo with a small molecule cocktail, uh, but, uh, but I think there's still a significant cancer risk. So I'm not totally on, on the transient reprogramming bandwagon in vivo. Um, another one is uh, DNA damage repair fidelity. So this is the biggest elephant in the room that I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, all of the progerias, the accelerated aging diseases are DNA damage problems, uh, somatic mutations, DNA damage, they're central to aging without a doubt. Um, DNA is the longest lived macromolecule. It's the starting point for every other cellular process, really. It's the, it's the map or the blueprint. And the human, human supercentenarian data, comparative longevity work, all point directly to DNA repair as essential. And yet there are almost no groups working on enhancing the fidelity of DNA repair. There are a couple 
druggable targets to do so. And, and at Cambrian and elsewhere, we, we've started projects on those. Um, but there have been very few systematic efforts to accomplish this. Uh, and also the clinical strategy for indication selection is not obvious. There was one early attempt, a company called uh, DNAge in Holland, uh, led by Jan Hoymakers. And uh, the investors, I think, which included LSP, pivoted the company away from enhancing DNA repair to inhibiting DNA repair in the context of cancer, such as the PARP inhibitors do. Uh, and, and investors will often do that. They'll make you pivot to something that they think is easier to sell, sell the pharma. So if you're really concerned about longevity, you have to always be vigilant to, uh, about you know, being pivoted away from, from the, uh, the end goal. Uh, another interesting area uh, is autophagy and proteostasis. Um, of course, I'm biased, uh, but one, one really interesting paper was out of Cynthia Kenyon's group a couple of years ago that showed that a certain subtype of autophagy called microautophagy is critical for the germline immortality of C. elegans. So when the sperm and egg meet, the cell breaks down and recycles its proteome, possibly also DNA repair effects. Um, and, and there's another type of autophagy, which is more commonly studied, which is called macroautophagy. There's also chaperone-mediated autophagy by Anna Maria Cuervo's group, Cellphage Therapeutics. Um, but macroautophagy is best studied. And when you enhance it genetically, it extends lifespan of mice by about 15%, shown by multiple groups. It works in many animal models of disease and uh, has beneficial metabolic effects. Um, and several, several groups, um, including the late Beth Levine's group, showed uh, compelling lifespan health span effects. Um, and, uh, and since then, probably about five other autophagy companies have been formed. Um, and, uh, and I already mentioned Calporta. So, uh, and, and that's a mechanism around TFEB, calcinurin-mediated TFEB activation. Uh, so what I've noticed is a lot of the autophagy companies are concentrated around uh, TRIPML1, which, which is risky uh, to put all of the industry's eggs in one basket. And also it's a duplication of effort, so it doesn't really make sense for, to do that, but alas, Pharma always does that. Look at the checkpoint inhibitors or T cell therapy, for example. Anyway, um, wrapping up, the last one that I think is quite interesting is uh, gut barrier function. So that's not the microbiome, which is important uh, and related, but I think overhyped and hard to drug right now. But uh, focusing on gut mucosal immunology and the barrier function, um, you know, the the GI tract is technically outside of the body. It's um, it's external to the body. So there are tons of microbes in there and, and food and allergen, immuno, immunogenic molecules. And, and today, modern humans were eating so much garbage that we didn't evolve to eat. No wonder the gut breaks down first. And, you know, even back in the day, Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine said, death begins in the gut. The Nobel Prize winning immunologist and geroscientist, actually, Eli Mechnikov, um, uh, had similar sentiments, and he was keen on consuming acidophilus in his yogurt because he saw some long-lived Ukrainians did that. Um, so for more on that, I actually gave a talk on the biochemistry of brain aging to um, the Oxford Aging and Neuro Societies. You can find that on YouTube, and I break down some of the gut-brain axis and neuroinflammation connections. So so hopefully that that's a smattering of various areas that uh, people can can look further into. Okay, yeah, thanks for that. You know, there's a lot to unpack there, but um, yeah, I definitely agree. Like gut barrier function, that's that's very interesting. That's uh, an area that you know reason has also talked about that's underserved in in the longevity therapeutic space. 
Um, autophagy yeah. is obviously, you know, becoming very hot right now. Um, yeah, transient reprogramming, very cool. Uh, and I, I definitely like the idea of um, rejuvenating like uh, HSCs or like hematopoiesis, right? So, yeah. so the bone marrow transplant aspect is is very interesting, and I think um, also very underserved. Uh, um, so maybe uh, I can ask uh, next question. We're 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 actually whoa we we're, we're getting close to uh, time. Do you have? Do you have uh, extra time to go over? Just uh, of course, ask a couple questions. Of course, like, man. This oh, is <laughs> my quickly becoming my favorite podcast, so I'm happy to uh, to give some more time. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, so maybe I would ask you like a question about um, the different ways that startups are formed. So um, the way that I see it um, is basically there's two sort of main uh, models that people use to start like these biotech companies. They're sort of like the traditional biotech pharma play where they will spin out like an asset from uh, from a university and just put like a bunch of seasoned sort of vets uh, around it. And then there's the other sort of model, which I, I, I would term it the West Coast model, where it's more like founder led and um, sort of more like almost like a tech startup sort of model. Um, so what do you think about those two different uh, models? Uh, what are the pros and cons of, of each? Yes, um, that's that's a good question. Um, this is going to be an unpopular or a contrarian opinion. <laughs> but, um, you know, pharma and biotech requires more deep expertise than tech startups on balance. Uh, tech startups, you can learn on the fly. Uh, and in pharma, you need people with decades of technical expertise and world experts on the science and a very narrow niche of the science to even stand a chance, um, which is a cool part of my job, being able to learn from hardcore subject matter experts while remaining a generalist and getting exposure to a lot of different areas. Um, you know, I've noticed the best dynamic at a company is to pair a young, energetic 30-something operator with a senior biotech, old-school pharma veterans. Um, you know, my critique of Silicon Valley and echoing the Founders Fund manifesto, I think it's called What Happened to the Future, uh, something like that, is um, we wanted flying cars and all we got was 140 characters referencing Twitter and the trivial progress made by tech in the world of bits rather than atoms. Um, you know, in actual fact, the government labs have pretty mind-blowing technology, but it will only be released to the public slowly. Um, so, you know, distracting consumer tech stuff like software at Google and Facebook and Microsoft um, it's not as sophisticated compared to hardcore physical engineering or the arcane and empirical dark art of drug discovery. Um, those companies are more about achieving a monopoly early on and benefiting from the network effect. Google is absolutely a monopoly, but you know it's yet to seriously abuse its power yet as far as I know and good on them for creating Calico. Um, but I think the distraction economy gold mine has run dry, thankfully, because we can't get much more utility for humanity out of yet another app designed to steal your data and sell ads. So, so that's sort of the difference between the deep tech and software approaches of Silicon Valley versus more the Boston biotech scene. And I applaud investors like uh, Cambrian investor Steve Jurvetson or Peter Thiel, Christian Angermeyer, and agitators in the biotech world like Bob Nelson. Uh, at Arch, who's not making any friends, but he's actually taking big risks on game-changing technology. These guys are investing in stuff from nuclear fission to m fusion to uh, metamaterials and 
of course, longevity before it was fashionable. I think Teal was investing in longevity 15 years ago. And I also heard the rumor uh, that uh, Jeff Bezos is getting more into this space as well. And I'm just wondering where the hell is Elon Musk? <laughs> um, so, so, you know, I strongly agree with Teal and Jim O'Neill's criticism of higher education as the new Catholic church. Most of the money is going to academic biology. I think it's uh, much less the other subjects in academia are wasted. Money is wasted as academics try to play the glass bead game of Herman Hesse's novel and advance up the career ladder without actually um, doing what they think would be most likely to cure the disease. Um, and so, you know, there's a general theme uh, in that tension between advancing up the career ladder or playing politics versus sacrificing your own ego and aggrandizement in order to do something real with your life. Um, so, you know, what I've noticed in the uh, West Coast, East Coast uh, style is thus far, um, I think the East Coast uh, style of just hiring a bunch of experienced biotech operators into a company um, and then, you know, third rock or flagship uh, seeding it and going from there. I think on balance, that's been more successful. I mean, there were some early successes on the West Coast in Genentech and Amgen and so on, and a lot of San Diego companies, hybrid tech and, and others, but uh, in, in uh, IDEC. But um, a lot of the success in the last decade or two has been coming out of the uh, Boston ecosystem. So, so I don't know which model is, is better, um, but, you know, I tend to, I tend to caution those who are, you know, fresh out of whatever degree jumping into biotech on their own. I think it makes a lot of sense to surround yourself with very experienced veterans because it's, um, it's not something like in software, you can just, you can just will into existence with enough uh, Nietzschean uh, will to power or whatever, like these, um, tech egos have, um, you really need a lot of deeper expertise. Um, so, so anyway, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, man, but you know, I, I wish both methods much success <laughs> and I'm partial to partial the West coast vibe being a Californian myself and, and liking how into longevity the West coast is. So. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, uh, you've definitely hit the nail on the head, like, uh, you know, pairing some of the the more seasoned vets with, um, you know, the energy uh, and the vision of younger founders. I think that's definitely one way to go. Um, like, you know, a lot of the longevity biotech companies that, you know, you hear about on the West Coast, you know, they'll, they'll often hire like very seasoned uh, pharma vets for their like, you know, chief medical officer or chief, you know, clinical development officers. So yeah, that, that's very much uh, the case to get, you know, the expertise of these, um, you know, seasoned pharma vets. Um, yeah, so yeah. maybe the uh, next question, let's see. Um, so uh, one of the things that uh, Laura Demet Deming talks a lot about in uh, the longevity industry is that there's not enough founders. So, um, you know, a good source of founders often comes from academia, but um, sometimes they're sort of risk averse, I would say. So uh, what are your thoughts on this? How can we get more academics to start biotech companies? And um, uh, what qualities make a, a successful scientist turned biotech entrepreneur? Mm, yeah. Um, one idea would be um, more sophisticated training programs at universities which do have an incentive to do more spinouts because um, because of the Bay Dole Act uh, in the 1980s, they they own the IP. So a lot of universities are getting quite rich from biotech these days. Um, 
uh, as well as programs like the lecture series that you're working on um, in stealth mode uh, that I'll be honored to participate in. Um, more of that kind of support for, you know, postdocs who are keen to get out of the, the Ponzi scheme, the pyramid scheme of academia. Um, and, uh, you know, they PhD programs train you in a very narrow area. You know, it's like one single protein and it's function. <laughs> it's, um, it, you know, uh, that's an arcane approach. Uh, these programs should be, you know, training people broadly on generalist skills across the spectrum and places like Scripps do a pretty good job of that. Places like Oxford, of course, do not. Um, it's sort of old school and, and narrow, but anyway, so, um, just more training for academics to know how to spin out a company. And, um, you know, Stanford has, uh, has, um, a, um, a program for doing that too. So anyway, uh, you know, the raw talent is there. The industry is growing. I don't think there's enough industry veterans passing on the key skills to the newbies because there's this sort of adverse selection where there's a brain drain. When biotech managers are successful, they get rich and retire. I mean, plenty stick around to help others too. But um, uh, I, I just think it's it's like, um, it's almost like an infection dynamic. You know, you need these early founders or, or just like the the um, spread of any gene through a population, um, you need the, these originators, these founder founders, sort so to speak, to spread the expertise throughout the community, and they pass it on. So it's a mimetic process. So, so the the snowball effect is building. I think um, the qualities that make a successful scientist turned biotech entrepreneur, I don't profess to know, um, because luck plays such a major role in this industry and in many industries. Um, you know, I could say all of the typical things, uh, you've got to be, have a high IQ, be conscientious, be a good communicator, pitch well, um, you have to be well connected. Um, you know, all of those things that are fairly obvious. I don't know if there's any kind of secret sauce and, you know, it's just luck, uh, in, in good judgment to choose the right projects. So, um, so I don't know, but I, I definitely like to see more support from the university system and the NIH for training biotech managers, because that's a huge bottleneck, it, um, especially in the US uh, and, and in Europe. Um, well, in Europe, particularly because they come to the US and the wages, the, the compensation packages of biotech managers are skyrocketing, especially lately. We're bubblicious times, but I think that's going to continue because it's a relatively rare skill set. Anyway, so so yeah, more, uh, more support specific training programs um, for biotech managers. Hey, yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, it, it's kind of hard to say like what is you know the best the be the best traits for you know um, a scientist turned entrepreneur. But um, maybe if I'm like a biotech entrepreneur and I'm just getting started, um, what are sort of like the common mistakes that you see uh, new biotech entrepreneurs make? Yeah, what are the common mistakes? Um... Yeah, that's that's a good one. Uh, there are so many, uh, and I've certainly made some, but there are many more still to be made. Um, the core rookie mistake is probably underestimating the difficulty uh, and costs of drug discovery uh, and time required. Um, I think uh, Bob Swanson or Herb Boyer, so founders of Genentech said, um, if we knew what we were getting into, if we had any idea how difficult this would be, uh, we would never have begun. So there is some value to 
that naivete. Um, um, so, uh, you know, the analogy to software between software and drug discovery does not hold. Um, software is created by humans, it's contrived by humans, it's code and marketing effectively. Biology is a physical fact of the world. Um, it's, and we don't understand it. We don't understand that code at all. Uh, and, and most of the time in science, your experiment fails or your hypothesis is wrong or both. Uh, so you should only take an asset from academia when it's got a mature data package and other groups have validated that mechanism of action and so on. And the evidence is rock solid uh, so that you mitigate the biology risk, which is always your biggest risk. Making drugs is actually fairly sorted engineering discipline at this point. The biggest risk is the biology risk in evaluating that data, the data quality. Another mistake um, to echo the thinker uh, Jack Scannell is uh, that the animal models are unreliable. So like bleomycin for fibrosis like IPF or amyloid beta and Alzheimer's, uh, we need more reliable models of disease. Um, another point is that AI for drug discovery may be just a touch overhyped. Um, the major bottleneck is not information processing power. Uh, it's that our animal models of disease are not predictive of human disease. So uh, I don't see how the computers will help us overcome that. You know, we just have to do the work of better understanding pathophysiology of disease. Uh, and it's shrouded in all kinds of dogmas, like the amyloid hypothesis over the last 30 years, any dissenters were silenced, um, even till this day. Um, so, so AI probably isn't going to overcome that fundamental problem. Um, and, you know, drug discovery, biology, it remains a very empirical uh, trial and error based uh, discipline. So anyway, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So in summary, biology is hard. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's... by the way, sorry, by the way, um, uh, Andreessen Horowitz, I think Mark Andreessen or somebody said, uh, you know, software is eating the world and, and now software is eating biology. Well, that really remains to be seen. Bruce Booth from Atlas Venture penned a piece in his excellent blog, LifeSci VC, um, that actually biology is still eating the world of biology. There's, there hasn't really been a dent put in the drug discovery process by any kind of gadgets or, or any kind of software, I should say. There have been advances in technical um, aspects. So anyway, don't believe the hype, even though, even if you're in the Bay Area. <laughs> okay, right on. Um, maybe I can ask you one last question and then we'll let people up. Uh, yeah, thanks sure. for everybody in the audience for waiting patiently. There's just like so much um, expertise and so much knowledge to unpack here. But um, I'll just get through one last question. Um, okay, so if you were a 57-year-old billionaire, um, you know, nobody in particular <laughs> who's looking to invest like a substantial amount of your net worth into the longevity biotech industry. Um, how would you do it? Yes. So, um, Jeff Bezos, I hope you're listening. <laughs> I saw this question coming or any other billionaire. Uh, you're welcome to drop me a line. Um, <laughs> so I think this is fairly obvious stuff, but um, here are some ideas that I, I wrote down. So first, I'd create an institute like the Salk or the Scripps Institute, uh, but focused on longevity and regenerative medicine, similar to the Calico approach, but less secretive um, and nonprofit. Uh, and it would recycle its profits back into R&D 
like the drug discovery model at, at Scripps, which is merged with Caliber, which is another fascinating discussion of this within, within itself. This is a new model that could revolutionize academic drug discovery, basically holding on to mature assets for longer, doing their own internal um, pharmacology, medicinal chemistry, clinical development, uh, IND enabling studies, and so on. So enabling academia, universities, and institutes to hold on to their IP longer rather than just hand it over to pharma at a discount because pharma is often able to snatch these assets for pennies. You know, for example, Humira, the best-selling drug right now, Humira, I think it's 20 billion in sales per year, um, originated uh, at Scripps and at Cambridge, UK. Um, and uh, Scripps has barely seen any money from that. And so that incentivized them to change their entire model. And I really hope it works. Um, so they're basically turning themselves, these research institutes into VCs combined with mid-sized pharmas doing everything up until phase three before selling the asset. Um, <clears throat> so I'd support that. Um, secondly, I'd create a foundation to fund geroscience research and drug discovery like was done by Larry Ellison, the head of Oracle. Uh, rumor has it he did that for tax reasons and then stopped and then invested all the money in his boat racing endeavors. Um, uh, wish him well. I would like to see him come back into the aging space because he did fund a lot of research for some years. Um, next, I'd create a biotech management academy or multiple of them across top institutions, including between the business schools and medical schools for academics to learn three topics, longevity, biotech management, and venture finance. It would be a degree like Cambridge's Master's in Biotech Entrepreneurship or the Roy Vagelos program at Wharton, uh, but more hardcore and heavily subsidize the cost to attract the best talent. Um, I'd also make all the content available open source on Coursera. Um, and I would finance fellowships for postdocs to take two-year sabbaticals to launch a NUCO with uh, some friends. Um, and and I, <laughs> this is a tall order, but I try to wipe out student debt uh, which is kind of the idea behind the Teal Fellowship. The student debt, it's an albatross around the necks of people who they have no choice but to take a steady corporate job to pay off the debt. And Noam Chomsky has uh, spoken about this as well as a means of social control. Um, next, I would spend a lot of money on political lobbying. So creating a whole think tank with operations internationally, DC, Brussels, Geneva, Beijing, et cetera. Um, I'd create a TV series or popular movies about how good longevity could be for society. So many people think it's going to be dystopian to live longer, which always escapes me why that would be the case to be healthier longer, because that's the entire underlying premise of medicine writ large. Um, and I'd press the angle that aging is just a better way of treating diseases and longevity per se um, is not the goal, but it's a happy consequence or side effect. And, and Aubrey has been uh, using that that angle as well. Um, I'd create a venture philanthropy fund to seed finance companies because there's a valley of death uh, in academic spinouts at the seed and series A stage, similar to the NIH's SBIR program. Um, and I'd focus personally on brain aging in particular because it's massively neglected by pharma and it's one of the worst ways to decline to experience it. Um, I, I have family who, who are experiencing dementia um, I partner with the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation. I quite like their approach. They're no longer funding any amyloid work. Um, and, uh, you know, also because why the brain? Because we can replace most other organs eventually. In theory, we could grow them ex vivo and transplant, but we're never going to be able to do that with the brain. Next, I would create um, some biotech hubs, geographical hubs. So 
there's some magic about hubs uh, localization. Um, I would create hubs outside the US in places like the UK Golden Triangle, uh, Switzerland, Basel, uh, Japan, uh, Stockholm, Singapore, places like that, um, with a lot of human capital and financial capital uh, and infrastructure. And I would try to get the local governments to match the funding as well, because you need a critical mass. Um, and uh, it, it really helps to have sources of capital that are tethered to a specific region. Otherwise, everyone will end up investing in Boston, San Francisco, and San Diego, as we see today. Um, Last two things, I would invest heavily in automating experimental biology. So having spent many countless hours frustrated at the bench, uh, it's crazy for scientists to be spending their time and energy mixing liquids and troubleshooting assays that should work right out of the box. You know, these are very intelligent people, uh, mostly, and, you know, they're doing work that you could train a monkey to do or, or that a robot could do better. Uh, we should be doing, humans should be doing intellectual creative work. Um, so robotics and standardization and, and uh, other techniques by groups like Arcturus in the UK, Emerald Cloud Labs, Transcriptic and, and the like are hugely underrated. We need to move from biology being a cottage, cottage industry uh, of craftsmanship and apprenticeships uh, to one where you're only rate limited by your own creativity, uh, not your physical dexterity or your manual energy or whatever. Um, and then finally, uh, for, for Bezos and other billionaires listening, um, you know, these are this, some bigger problems that are above my pay grade. I don't have solutions, but things that would really move the needle would be to uh, reform the cultures at the FDA, NIH, and throughout academia. So they have a tendency toward politics, conservatism, incrementalism, rather than a sense of urgency on behalf of patients. Uh, so, you know, we're all marching toward our graves at a similar pace. Um, and, and there are many good people in these organizations, but the superstructure overpowers their good intentions. So, so if, um, you know, if Bezos or Musk can do what they've managed to do, maybe they can actually change things at these large, at the institutional level. So I'll leave it at that. Great. Yeah. Lots of great insights there. Like, um, you know, turning the, uh, uh research institutions, into sort of like VC firms, you know, letting them do drug discovery, uh, kind of like the scripts in the Salk Institute. Um, yeah, I definitely agree with that. And like, yeah, increasing biotech management, uh, like education, uh, political lobbying, that is is very key, as well as, um, I guess, media, like as you mentioned before, having some sort of like TV or, or movie made about longevity and, and casting it in like a positive light instead of, uh, you know, the, the typical Hollywood uh, futuristic dystopian sort of narratives. I think that's going to be really important. Um, actually, someone, Tim Mopin, is uh, creating a feature film uh, hmm. about this. And uh, so that's going to be interesting. He, he previously crowdfunded a, a short film and now he's turning it into a, like a feature length. Um, I love it. Yeah, and the venture philanthropy, group, philanthropy groups and uh like a longevity biotech hub would be cool. Um, yeah, all these are incredible ideas. Um, I guess, yeah, we're, we're already over time. So I just want to thank you for being so kind with your time um, and, and generous with your time, Sebastian. Um, maybe uh, just uh, ending off our conversation, uh, is there anything that uh, 
we can do to help your specific mission in longevity is are you i don't i don't know are you looking for certain partnerships or um uh are you looking to be connected to certain uh, uh are you looking for like academics or something like that uh, i'm just going to open up the floor yeah. to you to uh to ask cool yeah thanks nathan i'm i'm happy to hang out with uh you and the cool people on the call um how how you might help me well um like I mentioned and often mention the shout out that if you're a biotech founder with a longevity drug, um, get in touch. Um, I can connect you with investors and, and if I really like your company, advise you in some capacity. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, if you happen to be a billionaire family office and you wish to invest in biotech companies, you're also welcome to get in touch. Uh, and, um, like, like Nathan mentioned, um, He's launching uh, HealthSpan Capital, a seed longevity fund, which I'll be advising. So that would be a good uh, connection as well. So, so yeah, those are the main things. I mean, it's basically the science, pairing the science with the capital uh, in the teams. Uh, also, you know, if you're looking for a job at a biotech company as a scientist or manager in another capacity, uh, feel free to add me on LinkedIn and let me know and I'll put you in the Rolodex because... A lot of these companies are hiring on a rolling basis. So, so yeah, I think that covers it. Okay, great. So you guys heard it from Sebastian. If uh, you're looking for a job in a longevity biotech company, definitely reach out to him. If you know any billionaires or family offices that, that want to invest in this space, definitely connect with Sebastian. And um, yeah, and if you're an entrepreneur, a biotech founder with like a longevity drug uh, and you're looking for... Um, some advisory uh, advice or um, potential connections, uh, definitely reach out to Sebastian. He knows basically everyone in this space. <laughs> okay, so um, I guess we'll end it here. I'll just make a note that uh, next week we won't be having the show on Thursday. We're having actually a, uh, a panel event uh, that we've organized with uh, Avi and Laura Minkini. Basically, we have uh, a lot of the you know big names in longevity science all in one clubhouse panel. We'll have Aubrey de Grey, of course, uh, David Sinclair, uh, Joe Pedro de Magalash, um, and a bunch of others, like eight, eight people. I, I don't have time to say all their names, but uh, it's definitely going to be a great panel and don't miss that. So that's on Tuesday, uh, June 15th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Okay, so with that, um, just like to thank Sebastian again for, for coming on the show. It's been a great conversation, obviously filled with tons of insight. And uh, I encourage anybody out in the audience who uh, wants to connect with them uh, to definitely do that. So uh, yeah, thanks, Sebastian. Thank you, Nathan. It's been fun. And uh, thanks, everybody, for coming. Keep up the good work. Great. Thanks. The pleasure was all ours. OK, so we're going to close it here. And uh, take care, everyone. And have a nice rest of your day.